Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. Hello! Did you hear? I say, kind of sarcastically. The live-action Barbie movie directed by Greta Gerwig is opening this week. It's a Barbie world out there, and we are so here for it. Becky and I both started thinking about our coverage of Barbie that we did a few years back and the history of this icon, as well as the history of the woman who created her, Ruth Handler. You know, it feels like we are all Barbie girls right now. So let's don our pink, even if it's not Wednesday, and listen to the history of Barbie. On with the show. And here is your 30-second summary. Although she's made of plastic, this American icon has reflected the culture in which she grew up, for better or for worse. And in her teeny tiny cha-cha heels, she's walked straight into our hearts. The end. Let's talk about Barbie. But first, let's drop her into history. In 1959, Hawaii and Alaska became U.S. states. Bozo the Clown and Disney Sleeping Beauty both premiered. Motown Records was formed, and Charles de Gaulle became president of France. 16-year-old Jimi Hendrix played his first gig and was subsequently kicked out of the band for his wild, unusual guitar playing. Ella Fitzgerald won her first Grammy Award at the first Grammy Awards. And the Guggenheim Museum in New York City opened the same year its architect, Frank Lloyd Wright, passed away. Also died that year, Cecil B. DeMille, Buddy Holly, Billy Holiday, Lou Costello. Born that year were John McEnroe, Kevin Spacey, Weird Al Yankovic, Emma Thompson, Flavor Flav, and Mike Pence. <laughs> I sense an epic dinner party. <laughs> and in 1959, a teen doll for little girls was introduced named Barbie, and she began her journey to being an icon. Barbie Millicent Roberts made her first public appearance on March 9, 1959 at the American Toy Fair in New York City, the brainchild of Ruth Handler, co-founder of Mattel. She's one of 11 toys that made the first year of the Toy Hall of Fame. She's an American icon as recognizable as Coca-Cola or the Statue of Liberty. You don't need us to tell you how famous she is, of course. <laughs> Some of you are probably sitting in a room with her right now, and chances are she's naked. Saucy. <laughs> We're here to tell you the story of how the Barbie doll came to be. But first, let's talk about the woman behind the icon. Ruth Moscow was born on November 4th, 1916 in Denver, Colorado. She was the 10th and last child of Jacob and Ida Moscow, formerly Moskowitz of Warsaw, Poland. She was the third kid born in America to this family out of 10. In Poland, Jacob was a Jewish blacksmith and a heavy gambler who, along with many Jewish men, had been drafted into the Russian army. Poland was under Russian rule at the time, and anti-Semitic Russians were all over the place. The plan was to decimate the Jewish population by heavily padding the Russian army with men, and Jacob was called up. But he left his army unit, wife, and seven children on his way to being in the army and hopped a ship to America. When baby Ruth was only a few months old, Mama had to go in for surgery, and it was decided that Ruth would go live at her older sister Sarah's house for a while. 20-year-old Sarah had just gotten married, and you know, older sisters and big families are experts at baby wrangling. It seemed like the natural thing. Fine. But somehow Ruth never made it back home. Never. <laughs> 
She was an adorable baby. And I can see why Sarah was so taken with her. You know, she was setting up house with her husband. And shortly after having Ruth in her home, she found out she couldn't have children. So here was a baby. She wanted a baby. Mama Ida had 10 children. She's not going to miss this one. It's the last one. Well, and I, she never saw her parents except every Friday night at family dinner. She went to a different school. I am wondering with absolutely no evidence if this was actually the oldest sister's own child. Yeah. So anyway, no evidence except for the very suspicious like, huh, okay, never Mm -hmm. came home. Well, between Ruth and her parents, there was a language barrier because the Moscos spoke Yiddish at home and Sarah and her husband did not. I find this so strange. And even Ruth said, Ma and Pa always seemed like grandparents to me. <laughs> well, they were older. She was in her early 40s when she gave birth to Ruth. I mean, OK, it's not old to have a baby because I had one at 42, but um it would have been old. I mean, you get old fast. And then sure, her health was never really good. Add on that stress of all the gambling debt that Jacob was getting into. I mean, he was making money. He owned a company that made truck bodies for another company that was a moving company, the largest in America. So he was doing okay, but a lot of his money was landing on the poker table. Well, so Ruth, safely away from the poker table over in her sister Sarah's house, grew up as a relatively pampered only child. A situation that if she's any Thing like mine gives you an inner confidence that cannot be bought in a store. Uh, also, you get very comfortable hanging out with grown-ups all the time. And there is a bit of irony in the fact that Ruth, rather than play with dolls, would rush home after school and ran down to her sister's drugstore to put on an apron and go to work behind the counter. She loved it. She thought that was super fun, waiting on customers, learning how to do displays. They even let her learn how to be a miniature soda jerk, which I'm sure was a hilarious draw for the customer. <laughs> you know, it must have been so funny. She was so short. <laughs> well, playing with other kids was okay, she guessed. And everyone liked her just fine, but she really liked to be where the action was. And that's a pattern that went through her whole life. As she grew up, she did other sorts of work. I hope she got paid, but honestly, knowing her character, it might not have even mattered to her. She worked in her brother's office all through middle school, junior high, it was called, you know, typing, filing, answering the phone, and then on to restaurant work when her sister and her husband bought a restaurant. So by the time Ruth graduated high school, what did she have? Like 12 years of work experience already? (laughs) Sarah and Louis were kind of entrepreneurial. They opened the pharmacy and then they opened this big, uh, they called it the home public market. And there was all these little stalls that sold different things. It was like a mini mall. And Sarah ran the lunch counter there. So that's where Ruth got to work. It just reminded me of like a Trader Joe's. It sounded like it was this big stone building with skylights and all these colorful corrals all over. It sounded really fun. That kind of thing is very fashionable. It's coming back. As a matter of fact, I mean, they're, they're all over Europe, of course, but there's one opening here in Kansas City. Although I have to say it's mostly, it almost seems like a food court rather than like a market because it's kind of like 12 independent restaurants under one roof. Ah, uh, yeah. This was like you just said, it was a market. There was the fresh meat guy and the fresh vegetable guy. And um, you had a wicker basket and you walked from one to the other and paid all together. I loved it. 
That's cool. Well, Ruth had met her boyfriend, Izzy Handler, at a high school dance, and it was on. Though sister Sarah massively disapproved of him. I'm not sure if he was from the wrong side of the tracks. Yes. His ambition to be an artist, you know, in an <laughs> era where the men are have to be the breadwinner and what's an artist going to do but keep you in the poorhouse, I guess. But in an era when it was legitimately probable you might marry your high school sweetheart, Sarah felt like she had to take some action. <laughs> well, he was from the wrong side of the tracks. His parents didn't make a lot of money. He hung around with a gang, you know, think more like, you know, the T-Birds from Greece than, you know, actual switchblade gangs. But he wore a T-shirt all the time. You know, he'd show up at the house in the same T-shirt over and over again. And here's Sarah. They're in a fairly affluent neighborhood. And this grungy looking kid is coming to pick up her only child. I can see why. She wanted her to marry a doctor or a lawyer. <laughs> well, she sent Ruth to live with their sister Lillian in California as far away as she could get. If she had relatives in England, she'd been sent there. <laughs> That's harsh. That's harsh. After graduation, though, they got back together. Take that. Ruth went back for a visit to California a few years later and ran into one of her mother's friends. It's a small world after all. This friend worked at Paramount Movies. That's exciting. That's glamorous. Oh, yes, said the lady, like this old thing. I was so lucky to get this at all. It's impossible to get your foot in the door of one of these places. Impossible. Well, that word is like a red rag to a bull for Ruth. Impossible. You do say so. My hiney. Ruth went right over there and got a job as a secretary. Right away. Super fast. Well, she had all that work experience. I mean, she'd been working since you know, nearly birth. And she'd worked in her brother's law office. She was perfect secretary. She had a resume and she was young and pretty. Why wouldn't they hire her? I just love the fact that like, what if she hadn't met that lady and had that gauntlet thrown? Would the story have stopped here? She would have just gone back home. Well, anyway, uh, how our timeline actually works is Izzy <laughs> came out to go to art school. And after six years of dating, breaking up largely due to either Sarah or geographic distance and chasing each other all over the country. Izzy and Ruth were married when Ruth was 23. And also, this is unusual because usually we change our subjects' names, you know, from childhood to marriage and birth. Well, Izzy, Mr. Ruth, became Elliot, his middle name, because Ruth preferred it. <laughs> she actually felt that there was some anti-Semitic undercurrents in the United States and that it would hinder him getting jobs. Probably so true. She, or, that was his middle name. He was going by a uh, nickname of his first name, Isidore. Well, so while keeping his day job at the lighting store, Elliot spent his nights designing and making, well, he started with furniture because they didn't have any money <laughs> to make any furniture. And his boss thought, hey, there's this new plastic. It's called baby. Light. Can you see, you're an art guy, if you can make lamps out of this that we could sell in the store? That's how he got his hands on the raw material and he would make things for their house. And Ruth loved it. She's like, you could sell this. And he would make figurines and specifically costume jewelry. His designs were just so fabulous. And Ruth spent her lunch hours and evenings after work making sales calls and making up marketing materials. And between the two of them, they got enough orders that they had to rent production space. They worked as a team so so well. Ruth bought the equipment on an installment plan so that they could have the minimum amount of equipment necessary. And this is even back when they're doing it out of their garage and melting the plastic on the stove. <laughs> what a smell that must have been. Not good. No. Elliot took on a partner named Zachary Zembi to fulfill all their contracts. And the new company was called Elzac, Elliot and Zachary. And business was hopping, hopping. You can look on eBay 
uh, for E-L-Z-A-C and see the kind of things they made. Some of the brooches were sort of culturally insensitive, I'd say, (laughs) especially the one they called the Eskimo. And there's a lot of African figurines, you know, not my taste certainly big and sort of gaudy, but they were inexpensive and they were fun and the war had started and wartime restrictions had hit other costume jewelry manufacturers hard. The use of metal was restricted to the war efforts. Plastic and wood, like Elzac used, fair game. And they were already ahead of the game with production and designs and everything. And people just really needed an inexpensive pick-me-up. There's only so many lipsticks you can own to make yourself feel better for the under $5. And the short story here is within a period of three years, Elzac was a multi-million dollar company with six showrooms, hundreds of female employees. It was wartime, don't forget. And Hollywood stars are wearing Elzac brooches. They were the customers. You would think Ruth with her drive to work and work together with Elliot would be outselling. No, she wasn't because same year that the war broke out, she gave birth to their first child, Barbara. Biology and society caught up with Ruth. Barbara Joyce was born in 1941 and two years later in 1943, their son, Would anyone like to guess what his name is? (laughs) Kenneth Roberts, known as Ken, was born. And America was okay with working women because of the war, of course. But mothers, we have to put them firmly back into their kitchens with halos on. And oh my, oh, was Ruth frustrated in an open way with her lot as a stay-at-home mother. I think this was even more acute because during wartime, if you look around, women are all over the workplace doing, quote, men's jobs with society's approval. Spoiler alert, ladies of the 40s, looking from here, this is temporary. (laughs) You, You shouldn't get used to your financial independence. But here was Ruth, who has basically been in the marketplace since she was old enough to make change. She's sidelined. And in her words, she said, I missed the adrenaline rush that came with closing a tough sale. I missed the fast paced world of business. And as far as she was concerned and everybody, it was just not possible to combine a career and motherhood. Middle class women, I have to add again, everyone cleaning everyone's house had had to combine motherhood and work forever. This is not women of color. This is not poor white women. This is a privileged set of middle class women who had this problem. Yeah, well, Sarah, who raised her, also raised her and worked. It's all Ruth knew. So to be stuck at home doing things that she did not do well, she wasn't very good at keeping the house. She was a terrible cook and she knew it and her heart wasn't in it. It was drudgery and she knew what else was out there. Yeah, it must have been a pretty tough couple of years. Made a little bit tougher when her son Ken was born. Her parents had come out to California to visit, went home. As soon as they got home, Papa went out to a poker game where he had a massive heart attack and died. Not even two weeks later, Mama went upstairs to take a nap and she died. So her parents are, well, the people she assumed were her parents. Mm -hmm. Now that we're running with that theory, they were both dead. And Ruth couldn't even go out to the funerals and grieve with her family because she had just given birth and she was still recuperating. Now remember, women recuperated for a longer time back then than we do now. I.e. more than eight hours. Yeah. Now, I I also want to say if Elzac as we have found out, was a multi-million dollar business. Surely she had household help. Mm -hmm. The fact that she was not good at cooking, as she said, was the reason for her dismay was like, hire someone for that. I'm sure you already have. So no, you can admit to us, women of the modern day, that you just didn't like being there. 
Yeah. <laughs> but to the 50s, you know, oh, I'm just trying. I'm struggling to. I was never brought up to this, blah, blah, blah. So she had felt like she had to make excuses, I think, for a while, at least at the beginning. Well, over at Elzac, Elliot and Zach were pretty constantly at each other's throats without Ruth there to keep the peace. <laughs> Their top employee, a man named Matt Matson, just up and quit because he was sick of it. He was sick of being in the middle. He was sick of having two bosses that told him to do opposite things. And I have been in that situation. Matt Matson, it is not good. So Matt went to Elliot, the boss that he preferred, and said, hey, do you want to go into business together? I only want to do this amount of work. And we could go into business selling, I don't know what, but we'll figure it out. Ruth looked around and saw all these photography studios popping up. And she said, frames, we can make frames. And so Elliot and Matt sat down and kind of formed a company. He's still at Elzac, but he's starting to form this company. And they put their names together. You know, it's Hamat. No. El Rattel. <laughs> yeah, I know. Real- <laughs> oh, you did the same thing I did? Yeah. <laughs> How about Matt L. Mattel? Sounds great, said Ruth. Yeah. Leave my name out. I don't care. Just get me out of this kitchen. <laughs> uh, Sister Sarah and her husband took a large part of Ruth's childcare responsibilities. Um, so that's good. They had moved out to California, and I imagine there was money for nannies, I'm just saying. But anyway, Ruth came out like a phoenix from the ashes <laughs> out of that kitchen. Actually, I have a different bird metaphor in mind, if you'll bear with me. She was like a duck gliding on the water. She would show up to these major buyer's offices in the fanciest of suits and so confident as if, of course, you know, Mattel, we are the major company that we are. And then under the water, the duck's feet, Ruth would, you know, run to her car and rip off her jacket and go drive a truck for an emergency delivery. That's the mythology. And where did all the Elzac millions go? We couldn't hire a truck driver. I don't know. This is the beginning in a garage mythology. But basically, Ruth behind the scenes was all about it. And then Ruth in the public was the face of PR and marketing. I see the grit, though, is the whole point of that mythology, the grit and determination to make something of herself and make something from nothing was there. Ruth was able to get a little bit of a boost when Elliot was able to leave Elzac. They bought him out for $10,000. Now, this is a $3 million company, but I think Ruth's words were, take the money and run. (laughs) I do not think that was a good negotiation, but okay. (laughs) But she wanted her husband working on this new company that he loved. She had been listening to him complain for years. So now he's giving his energy. That's giving Ruth a little bit more energy. And within a year, Elzac went belly up. (laughs) (laughs) They were making picture frames, like we said before, but out of the scraps, Mr. Artiste, Elliot, decided he was going to futz around with some dollhouse furniture because what happened to America's population right after World War II? Just a little thing you might have heard of called the baby boom. And Mattel, as a company, and Elliot and Ruth in particular, sniffing the way the wind was blowing, became aware that perhaps following the baby boom, there will be a toy boom. I imagine anything I heard of Elliot, he seems like a really calm guy who just loved art. I think it's every artist's dream, though, to be able to make a living from their art. Also, not even that, have someone else deal with the making a living part, and you can just do pure research and art all day, and then the end. Like, you can just drown in your art, in your creativity, and someone else does the gross part you don't feel like doing. That's the dream. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that is quite a dream. (laughs) Well, so they, you know, the dollhouse furniture was a hit. Um, A Just Like Mommy makeup kit, also amazing. And something called a -a uke-a-doodle, which on the ukulele forums, 
oh, the rabbit holes we fall down for you. <laughs> the, that is a very sought after, the original Yuka-Doodle, which of course, if a child played it, it didn't tune itself very well. And you know, you couldn't really play songs on it. It basically just sucked and made noise. So the uh, next couple of years, they made a mechanism where you could crank and make a song out of your ukulele. When they were coming out with the Yuka-Doodle, they learned an important lesson. They had the prototype and they were using it for sales. Another company, which was a bigger company than theirs, Crosstown Rivals, got their hands on the yukadoodle they said oh we can make this and scraped off the mattel name and used it as a design for their own ukuleles mm. so yeah so piracy like their first big toy item and there's piracy so they learned not to show the toys until they were you know all ready and the warehouse was full and they were ready to ship them it was a valuable lesson also they were willing to sue um well i say ruth was willing to sue and did so she wanted to protect their name and they, you know, learned to turn to some legal protections from then on. So, and uh, Matt did not have the stomach for this. <laughs> he was out of the business within two years. He sold out. You know, he wanted out. And this is where I want to scream down the timeline. You could have been the fifth Beatle. <laughs> you know, he was bought out for $15,000 by Ruth's sister and her husband. And I hope he had a news blackout for the rest of his natural life or else he was probably basting in regret sauce. <laughs> but he had also worked with Ruth. So I wonder if there was kind of um, a personality clash between the two of them. I don't know. This is, again, no evidence. But there had to be something else going on. I mean, just as the company was starting to make money, he was gone. Oh, just ahead of Ruth and Elliot, you know, maybe we can put the regret sauce on the back burner because ahead of Ruth and Elliot were about 10 years of nose to the grindstone, constant vigilance, brave business decisions, I guess. So it wasn't like an overnight success, I guess is what I'm saying. But it was a success. They moved into a house that Elliot himself designed. It was a modern, of course, we would call it mid-century modern. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but back then it was just modern. It had all these um, elements like a, there was a soda fountain in the basement. There was a <laughs> pool. There's a tree growing inside the house with fake birds in it. So they were singing all the time. <laughs> when you give a man like this with a lot of creativity money and say, build your house, he builds Elliot's dream house. <laughs> That's perfect. <laughs> I know. More power to him. Well, another member of the family was not so happy with her lifestyle. Barbara Handler was pretty unhappy with her mother's drive for work. And if you think about it, Barbara probably looks around and sees no role models in mm -hmm. her life for full-time mom, full-time career. This was the 1950s, the glorification of the home, episode 15. If you want to go in the way back machine of the History Chicks, we covered the real housewives of the 1950s. Uh, you know, the ladies, thanks for holding down the fort, but the boys are back from war and need their jobs back. You know, put these mm -hmm. big impractical skirts on and go back to your household, at least in the upper classes again, where Barbara and her friends lived. Here's a quote from Barbara. Barbara. I hated my mother being in business. I kept wondering why we were so different. And then, of course, Ruth said, I was not a very good mother. I had so much on my mind, it was hard to fit it all in. I think, which is the same perspective we have now, but maybe some more modern perspectives on work-life balance or it's okay to like lower your standards in both places for a period of time. Yeah. That would have helped them both, I think. Yeah. Well, I kind of related to Barbara here. On paper, she had a great life, you know, this great house and everything. But 
her mom wasn't there. And all she saw with her friends was normal. You know, she wanted to live in a normal house in a normal neighborhood, not Beverly Hills adjacent. She wanted to walk to school. She wanted to have a normal mom. She wrote her mother a note that Ruth actually kept and it said, if you were a nice mommy, you would make up and tuck me into bed. Ouch. I got it because my mother was also a Ruth type. You know, she owned her own business. She wasn't at home a lot. So I do remember going to my friend's houses where their mom stayed home and was like, gee, it's really nice around here. The kids aren't having to do the cleaning and dinner's on the table at five. And the moms would like, like if my shirt was bunched, they'd tuck them down. I don't know. They were just like mom me. I guess they felt bad for me. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I outgrew it by the time I was a teenager and I was extremely proud of her. But I really could kind of relate to young Barbara. Yeah, middle school is hard. I think in middle school, in elementary school, you can just let your freak flag fly. Like, I don't care. I'm wearing my Oscar the Grouch baseball hat. I don't care. But like in middle school, you look around and you side eye everyone and you want to fit in, fit in, fit in. And then like by the time you get to college, you find your people, I think. Yeah, middle school Barbara was not down. Ken, of course, he and Barbara had absolutely nothing in common, especially because Ken adored his mother. Ken was really mellow. He was a musical genius. He loved opera. He's 10 and he loves opera and doesn't like pop music. Barbara didn't even have like a brother to commiserate with. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, moving on. Let's go back to work. Sorry, Barbara. <laughs> at work. I know we don't have the modern perspective going at home. We have the modern attitude going on at home. But at the factory, the workers at Mattel were not only still mostly women, which was pretty radical, but they were racially integrated. Even the bathrooms. And you and I both know whole movies have been made about that issue. The Help, for example. <laughs> um, their first factory boss, head of production, was an African-American man. They hired people of all ages, people with special needs. They were so forward-thinking mm -hmm. and received awards for it from business associations in California. Another innovator had appeared on the California scene, a man named Walt Disney with a little thing you might have heard of called Disneyland, which opened in 1955 to the largest of fanfare. Almost 70 million people watched the live broadcast of opening day. That is powerful TV catnip. And this guy, this Walt Disney, had a new show for kids coming out in the fall, the Mickey Mouse Club on ABC. The network wanted a sponsor for the show, and advertising agencies were in a swivet. Okay, we advertise toys at Christmas, of course. Uh, but ABC's like, no, 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 no. We're not going to play this rickety, oh no, we've got a sponsor for two months and then nobody for 10. No, 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 no. I want a year-long contract. The advertising people were not comprehending. Was this not a kid's show? Kids don't have any money. Surely their parents aren't going to sit down on the Davenport and watch a show like this. Who's going to even see our ads? They just could not see their clients going for it. It's a fool's game. ABC, you're crazy. <laughs> they wanted half a million bucks for a spot on a little song and dance show and, you know, laughing, smoking their cigars, drinking their whiskey. Their lack of vision was Ruth's binoculars. She saw it. We see it, don't we? But with the advantages of modern life, she goes into Mikkel's accountant's office and asks, okay, half a million dollars. If this goes south, are we dead? And the accountant, I mean, it's the whole worth of the company. I love this accountant who might have been the man to push the button to make this all go, you know, because what if he had freaked out? He goes, you'd be starting from the ground floor again. You'd be smarting with pain, but you know, you wouldn't have to close up or anything. I imagine a moment of silence. And then Ruth told him, sign the sponsorship deal with the Mickey Mouse Club. 
Well, they had been developing a new toy. It was a gun. Ruth and Elliot thought that weapons were going to be really big toys. So they had developed this new gun called the Burp Gun. It was did you do you look at it? It is a fully automatic cap gun. It looks like a Tommy gun. I'm imagining that thing you get at Cabela's with the little cork where it's like boop, boop. Oh, no. This uh-uh. kid is wandering his living room in the commercial, like blasting the crap out of everything. And like smoke is coming out the back. You loaded it with caps, a roll of caps. So we could fire off and fire off and fire off just like a machine gun. It was a hit at the expo that they have every year called the American Toy. Toy Fair, the buyers for department stores, toy stores would place big orders. It's still held, by the way. It's uh, in February this year. And last year's big hit, brace yourselves, moms, <laughs> stink bombs, <laughs> oh collectible <my>. heroes <laughs> that fart. <laughs> Oh, no. Well, <laughs> sorry. I'm just sitting here grateful that my kids are too old for that. <laughs> Although, maybe not. <laughs> oh, my. Well, knowing that the sponsored TV show was coming out in the fall, Mattel and Ruth committed large amounts of production to burp gun backup. Fill the warehouses because the storm is coming. But summer sales just languished. Stores began canceling their follow-up orders. You know, this thing's not selling. It's just sitting there. I, Sorry, Ruth, I can't keep this money tied up. That black cloud of gloom started to descend on Ruth, you know. And then in October, M-I-C-K-E-Y-M-O-U-S-E. All the kids started badgering their parents for burp guns. Uh, It was the dawn of the persistent era of marketing. (laughs) They got burp gun advertising in front of them five days a week. That first ad, I'll put it on the show notes. It's a little boy. He's in a safari in the jungle, but he's really in his living room. So the point is, look at all the imaginative play that your child can do with this gun. (laughs) (laughs) They sold all the burp guns, made more money than they had made the previous year with everything put together. It was the Cabbage Patch doll of its time. Oh, oh. Right before Christmas, who called the factory? The office of President Eisenhower. (laughs) Um, Do you guys have any sitting around there in the factory? Oh, my gosh. I'm sorry, sir. Um, We really don't. Oh, wait. There's this broken one. The very last and sold burp gun on the planet, as far as I know, was specially refurbished by hand by an engineer and sent to the president to give to his grandson for Christmas. Mattel had arrived. This is probably a really good time to take a break. And when we come back, we'll find out what happens when Mattel has arrived. All right, we're back. Mattel is now swinging a big bat in the toy industry, and Ruth decided it was time to take one of her own ideas for a spin. Ruth says that she was watching her daughter Barbara playing with paper dolls with her friends. And she was watching how they played. And girls in the 1950s had... Baby dolls, of course. Baby dolls coming out the wazoo. Babies where eyes would open and close. Babies that would say, Mama. Betsy Wetsy would give you the chance to change a diaper. 
There's a certain amount of fun to be had with that, of course, there is, until you change a formula diaper later, <laughs> for real. But with paper dolls, you can go to a ball. You can meet the boy of your dreams under the moonlight. You can go on adventures. You can use your imagination to create whole scenarios, whole storylines of the doll's background and their exciting lives. But paper dolls are fragile. You know, paper dolls are crap. They fall apart. The paper tabs rip off. It's frustrating. Uh, if we, Mattel, could translate this whole concept to three dimensions, we would revolutionize the girl's toy business. A teenage fashion model doll with real clothes. That's the vague concept. Mm -hmm. Commence the dragging of company heels. For years, the men put up walls and barriers. They said, it's not going to sell. It's going to be too expensive to make. We're not going to make any money on it. No parent is going to buy a doll with boobs for their daughter. I know. know. You're crazy. And Ruth struggled and struggled to explain her idea. Also, the boys in question were all engrossed in this new baby doll they had called Chatty Kathy. Now, that turned out to be profitable, but all the resources were focused toward a known quantity. Um, And so they were not really down with messing with her vague idea. And so when Ruth and her family were in Hamburg, Hamburg, Germany. I want to point out they were on vacation. Yes. (laughs) A two-month vacation across Europe. Well, there in a shop window was just a thing. And even Barbara wanted one of these things to put in her room. What was it? It was an 11 and a half inch high doll wearing an outfit. She had eyeliner and had a figure. Ruth rushed in and bought a few of these dolls. This was Build Lily, sort of a product extension for a saucy cartoon that had appeared in the German newspaper Build. So here's a sample comic. It's kind of off color. This was a tame version. Policeman, miss, you can't wear two-piece bathing suits on this beach. Lily, smiling at him, why, officer, which piece would you like me to take off? (laughs) Or Bill Lily would appear in the frame covering herself in newspaper, and somebody would say, what are you doing? She's like, he broke up with me and took all the presents he gave me. (laughs) These are not kid cartoons, that's for sure. So, you know, she started out this doll as a gag gift for daddy, you know, a sexy, funny thing for your madman era desk or to give your dude at a bachelor party. But Lily had fancy outfits you could buy. Companies were making dollhouse furniture scaled to Lily's size. And all over Europe, kids wanted a Lily doll. So she might have started out. And I get so irritated when people are like, it's a sex toy. Like, what? No, it's really not. (laughs) And already she is being used in the way that Barbie would be used in the future. So I'm just saying Lily had two reputations at the same time. (laughs) Ruth and her team, including a man who had designed missiles during World War II named Jack Ryan, spent years back home working out the manufacturing and marketing details. You will read some sources that say that Jack Ryan was the inventor of the Barbie doll. Maybe we should just call Ruth the mommy and Jack the daddy. Although I have to say, mommy and daddy didn't always get along very well. Jack's mother was unconventional. Let's go with that. Although that's me being very kind. Jack's mother would not allow him to play with anybody. He couldn't have friends over. He couldn't go to friends' houses. No playing in the park together. She just didn't allow it. She also refused to accept the fact that he had dyslexia. She just wouldn't accept it. So it wasn't addressed when Jack was learning how to read. His entire childhood kind of made him a little odd. He grew up. He went to Yale. He got um, a degree. So he was a genius to have gotten this far in life without really reading. 
Hmm. He had gone to the company to work for them. He had seen them and said, oh, I can get a job with them. And Ruth and Elliot didn't want to give him a salary. So they said, well, we'll just give you a percentage of the profits. And Jack said, okay. (laughs) So he was an independent contractor. He was not an employee of the company. Well, and his name, to be fair, is on all the patents for the mechanics of her joints, Barbies. Mm -hmm. He -hmm. probably made out like a bandit. Oh, he did. He had a very, very colorful life. Five wives, body parties. <laughs> Let's just go with that. Drugs. Uh, he was married to Zsa Zsa Gabor. <laughs> <laughs> when he was married to his fifth wife, he wrote, I love you on the mirror with her lipstick and shot himself. <gasps> oh, yeah. It's a tragic tale. <laughs> well, that was a little detour. Um, Please. <laughs> that ended abruptly. I did not expect that. Okay. Well, um, so Ruth in addition to the unstable Jack Ryan, um, actually went out and found and hired an industrial psychologist to figure out how to get this admittedly statuesque doll past the moms. You know, the little girls seem to be in in this focus group, but they were immediately down with Barbie. But the moms are like, I don't think so. This is not appropriate. So the industrial psychologist determined that here was the strategy. To get past the gatekeepers, Barbie will teach your girls refinement. Barbie will teach your girls how to behave. It will allow her to practice being a woman in a safe environment. Oh, said the mom is okay. And we have our strategy. <laughs> <laughs> that was the marketing strategy. But the manufacturing strategy, they had to make it as inexpensively as possible. The built Lily doll was made of hard plastic, but Mattel wanted Barbie to be made of a softer plastic, which required a different type of manufacturing process in Japan. Mattel had been having a lot of their toys made in Japan. It was just cheaper and the workmanship was high. And so Jack took this doll to Japan and said, learn how to make this. And they did. When the first samples came back from Japan made from the built Lily doll, Jack had to file off the nipples. (laughs) Oh, dear. (laughs) We can't have that. No, no, no. So Barbie made her commercial debut at the annual toy fair in 1959 in a wedding gown for extra respectability. And the buyers gave her a hard pass. It was the scary, scary boobies. (laughs) Well, poor Ruth had a turbulent spring, a terrible spring. Barbie was basically a failure. All those years spent dreaming, all those years spent engineering her, and no one understood. Even her husband was not a fan. His surprise level was zero when Barbie didn't catch on, though he was there for her when she broke down. She didn't cry a lot, but this really broke her. And real Barbie, Barbara, graduated high school and immediately married her prom date sweetheart, much against her parents' wishes. I think she married to get out of the house. From now, she and her mother did not really have a good relationship for many, many years. So both Barbies are not performing as expected. No. Ruth had expected to be making $20,000 a week on Barbie. But what happened after the toy fair is she had to go and cut production by 40% because it just wasn't going to happen. I find it so circular that the first Barbie commercial, the lyrics go, Barbie, someday I'll be exactly like you. And the camera zooms in to dark-haired Barbie, a.k.a. Barbara, in her wedding dress. It's very meta. 
<laughs> slowly, though, slowly, the floodgates opened. What happened was it was summer vacation. All these little girls were seeing this doll in the TV programs, and they had all this time to play. So they went hardcore on their parents. I want a Barbie doll. I want a Barbie doll. And the mom said, okay, fine. Forked over their three bucks a doll, which is about $25 to get Barbie dolls. And the sales just started to go up. Here's what you got. The recognizable doll that you see today, uh, a little bit different of a face. She had a blonde or a brunette ponytail and bangs. She was wearing a black and white striped swimsuit and loop earrings and high-heeled black open-toed heels, which why wouldn't you wear that with your swimsuit? (laughs) There were 22 outfits you could buy for between one and five bucks. The most expensive would be $42 today, which was, of course, the wedding dress and accoutrement. There was a stripey hood. Hoodie, which I thought seemed very modern. Mm-hmm. The commuter skirt suit for smart shopping in New York City. A naughty negligee set. Whoa. <laughs> My favorite is the barbecue with a chef hat and a little apron and a gingham dress. So I like that. We'll post a picture. You can see them kind of on the box mm-hmm. for the original Barbie. There's pictures of them. Tiny zippers that really zipped. Hats, sunglasses, bags, working pockets. At least in this initial run, they didn't keep that up forever. <laughs> no. All the little clothes were sold on real hangers. And back then they had little teeny tiny snaps to close them in the back. She wanted the clothes to be like real clothing. And on a marketing side, they put the catalog for these clothes in every single box and a coupon. So they would have a little extra incentive to go out and buy some clothes. I mean, that's where the big money was going to be in all the extra things. Mm, that's how it always is. You buy Skylanders, then you got to buy all the little figurines. Mm-hmm. I'm glad we're past that too, by the way. Now it's just Fortnite bucks and I don't have to see that happen. The Barbie clothes designers went to France and Milan and New York City and sat there in those runway shows and were inspired by couture. The the thrill of it all made Barbie skyrocket to one of the most popular toys in history. There were 351,000 Barbies sold the first year. And that's actually a half a year because the toy fair was in March. So that's amazing. As far as I'm concerned, the way they approached the marketing from the very beginning was genius too. So from the very beginning, they would talk about Barbie as if she was a real person. Barbie, your glamorous best friend. A book series came out to tell her whole backstory. <laughs> she was from Wisconsin. Who knew? <laughs> She's the daughter of George and Margaret Roberts. Uh, she went to high school in New York City and became a teenage fashion model. She was a candy striper by the outfit now in her free time. And uh, later she explored some 1960s careers like she was a nurse and she was a teacher and she was a stewardess. Um, she had a red Jackie Kennedy suit and a bubble haircut in 1962, which I hate. I hate that Barbie. <laughs> um, Why do you hate that one? Because its hair is dumb. I, oh. you know, the whole purpose of Barbie to me is comb her hair, right? And do stuff, but whatever. This Barbie had Aquanet do, but just like Jackie. So it was very, very popular. And it probably looked like your mom's hair too in 1962. You know, mm-hmm. it was aspirational. Oh. Yeah. Ruth had never actually finished college. The general manager of Mattel said, look, you are about to have some meteoric expansion. You need to have 
some business training. You know, you've been doing everything, reinventing the wheel up till now. But if we can get you just a little bit more education, we can be talking the same language. So Ruth went back to college. And in the only situation, this whole story where she was intimidated was when she went to this class. It was geared towards executives. It was a business class. She walked in. It's all men. And she actually felt intimidated. She had a case of imposter syndrome. You know, what am I doing here? But it didn't last very long. She caught on very quickly. She learned her lessons. And. And she didn't get a degree, but she did create a new organizational flowchart, which eliminated the position of the general manager that told her to get the education in the first place. Yay! Psych. <laughs> well, Barbie got a boyfriend named Ken in 1962 by popular demand, but Ken's monopoly on Barbie's affections only lasted for two years until 1964. Everyone knew you could raid your brother's G.I. Joe's if you were after more of a dirty rock star kind of guy. I literally laughed out loud when I saw that love triangle going on in Toy Story. Do you remember G.I. Joe and Barbie's convertible and Ken kept getting bent out of shape? That was a documentary. (laughs) (laughs) When they were designing Ken... Ruth and the female designer wanted to have some type of a bulge in his pants. (laughs) And the men were like, "Uh, no, that's not going to work. They did compromise on a minor little, you know, tiny little hill. (laughs) Uh, Can you imagine these conversations around these, you know, with these dolls, these grownups talking about the private parts of a doll? (laughs) Oh, to be a fly on the wall. But they made up for it by giving him some phallic symbols and accessories, you know, like a rifle and a baseball bat, a barbecue fork with a hot dog at the end of it. Okay. We might be reading too much into it. (laughs) Uh, You know what? I don't think so. (laughs) Oh, you're saying it's compensatory behavior on the designer's part? Yeah, I do. I think I think Ruth got involved too. Yeah, oh, that's funny. <laughs> uh, Mattel was now the most monetarily successful toy company in the world, and that was a position they held for decades until Lego knocked them out of the top spot. I probably helped contribute to that. I have trunks full of Legos in my house. But it was time to take advantage of this power position and expand on the Barbie universe. Barbie's best friend, Midge, every girl needs a best friend. She was born in 1963. Luckily for parents everywhere, she could wear Barbie's clothes. Because can you imagine if she wasn't the right fit and you had to buy a whole second set? That's irritating. Yeah. Other family members joined her over the 1960s. Skipper is probably the most famous one of the family members, but the list is nearly infinite. Barbie herself kept up with the times, hair and makeup-wise, miniskirts, go-go boots. She got an astronaut suit and became a spy, like in James Bond. Or did she keep up with the times? You know, in the outside world, the real world, the civil rights movement was dominating American culture. Diversity was the order of the day. And for a company that was so progressive in its hiring practices, from the beginning, Mattel sure took a long time to produce any representation of a woman of color. And when they did, well, I don't know. They took a Francie doll, Barbie's fashionable English cousin. Is that a stretch? Yes. (laughs) Yes. And they just made the skin tone darker and then called her Colored Francie. (laughs) Oh, dear. Oh, dear. And although the whiter culture, by which you can pretty much say white culture, used the word colored 
quite comfortably until, say, 1970, it was on its way out. Malcolm X, among others, had brought in the word black to replace all the Jim Crow associations of other words from the past. Society was moving on. And so Mattel's use of the word colored seemed very tone deaf. If the customer base they were trying to appeal to was people of color. It seemed like they hadn't done their research. Colored was basically like old people trying to use slang. It was so out of touch. It was mock worthy. And the first colored Francie even has red hair. Like no effort was made at all. Though someone just sold theirs for $2,000 on eBay. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't she have darker hair to begin with? And it faded very quickly to red? Well, they corrected it in the second issue. Mm -hmm. Um, They already had a dark haired Barbie doll. Mm-hmm. So what's the problem? I guess yeah. is my point is like, did it fade or was that your excuse for it? Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, customers hated Colored Fancy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so Mattel quickly introduced Barbie's African-American friend, Christy, and they did a much better job with Christy. She lasted until at least 2016 and in general was a more representative and respectful addition to the Barbie universe. So she does have that long, unrealistic hair. That is seen as a selling point, though, because combing of Barbie's hair, like I said, out of nowhere earlier, seems to be one of the major things they try to preserve Mm -hmm. because people like combing the hair. But Christy, despite her constant presence in the Barbie universe, notably is the only major Barbie universe player who does not have her own Wikipedia page. What is the story with that? Oh, I didn't go that far. (laughs) Um, Really? That's uncool. So anybody that feels like making a Christy Wikipedia page, open season. Yeah, you would think, because that's like a big milestone in the company. Hmm. Mattel had also started to create dolls based on real people or characters. The first one was Twiggy in 1967. You know, the model with the short haircut and the big eyes and the impossibly thin body. (laughs) Um, The second one they did was based on a very popular TV show called Julia. Julia was a single mom. She was a nurse and she was African-American. Now, a lot of places will tell you that this is the first TV show that starred an African-American woman as the main character, which isn't the case. It was kind of the second. The very first one was in the early 1950s called Beulah, and it was based off of a radio show that turned into a television show. It was very short-lived. It was scripted, but that was technically the first one that had a Black woman as the main character. I keep thinking we talked about Beulah during the Hattie McDaniel episode. Well, You did the Hattie McDaniel episode by yourself, so. Oh, okay. Well, that is actually striking me. So maybe I'll go back and listen to that and see if my memory is correct. Hello, this is Future Beckett coming in with a little fact checking. Yes, in fact, Hattie McDaniel played Beulah on the radio for five years. She was the one that catapulted that into one of the most popular radio shows of the time. It was a 15-minute daily sitcom that transitioned to TV and Hattie McDaniel was on the second year for only six episodes until she got too ill to continue. So there you go. My memory works. (laughs) Hattie McDaniel was Beulah. Anyway, 
we will get back to Barbie and in fact, back to the Barbie doll fashioned after the character Julia on TV. What they did, however, for Julia, who was uh, based on the actress Diane Carroll, is they just changed the head and popped it on the Christie body. All right. (laughs) It's a start. Baby steps, right? Well, but at least they changed the face, which they hadn't with Colored Francie. True. That's very true. So, and the hair is is very, very different. So we might as well, I think, go into controversy mode, I guess. Barbie appeared in the world about the same time as the pill. She was born at the very beginning of the second wave of feminism. She entered the world the same year that we started to hear about Gloria Steinem, who had gone undercover as a Playboy bunny, the same year that the feminist mystique was published. (laughs) So Barbie's entree into the world was at a very interesting time in women's rights. She's entering her teen years just as the women's movement was heating up in the United States. There were protesters at the Miss America pageant, unheard of 10 years before. And Barbie was swept up in the general feeling that old stereotypes must go. Look at her measurements, for one thing, said people. Now you'll read assorted numbers of Barbie if she was a real person would be this big. Mm Mm-hmm. In general, the consensus seems to be something like 38, 18, 34. She's five foot nine. She weighs 110 pounds. Um, that waist is pretty tiny. Although Scarlett O'Hara was supposed to have a 17 inch waist, by the way. <laughs> they say that she was created with that thin waist to make the clothes easier to put on. The fasteners won't stick out weird that way. Mm-hmm. You'll hear if she was that size, she couldn't even stand up. I went down a unfortunate rabbit hole trying to find women with those proportions that I had to delete my browser history after. Let's just put it that way. (laughs) But the founder of Shape Magazine, Betty Brosmer, famous pinup model from the 1950s, is the closest G-rated person I could find with that hourglass of a figure. We'll give you some photos. I have got photos for her on the Pinterest board. Put it this way, she looks like she's breathing. She looks like she's walking around. Barbie can live at those proportions, but it is an unrealistic expectation of female beauty. (laughs) Seeing her as a real person, you're like, oh, okay. But if that's what you take Barbie for, an expectation of female beauty, yes, but people are still very divided about that issue. I think I can speak for us both that we grew up right in the sweet spot of having moms who were not super excited about Barbie's effect on our little psyches. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) You're maybe a little ahead of me. How did your mom feel about you having a Barbie doll? She did not. I did not have a Barbie doll. My mother refused. My mother was um, very much a feminist. She might not have said it, but she did all the actions and she thought Barbie was just an impossible um, ideal and she didn't think that it was a good toy for her daughter to play with. She believed in gender neutral toys. So our Christmas always was like these weird building sets from Sweden (laughs) or something. And I just longed for a Barbie doll and I did get a doll, not a Barbie doll, but a doll when I was probably about nine or ten because my mother also didn't believe in brand names. (laughs) She would like cut off the Agnes on her shoes, those little metal studs. She would cut them off. She refused to buy anything that had Calvin Klein or, you know, Gloria Vanderbilt. She refused to buy it. She thought it was marketing. She's like, why should we pay to market for these people? Which man, she was forward thinking. Oh, yeah. Well, 
I did a poll. I called my sisters special. They're getting used to my weird middle of the night calls. Um, <laughs> did we have Barbies? Because I don't think so. The consensus seems to be that we did play with some Barbies, but they lived at my country grandma's house. Leftover, we think, from our cousin who grew up in her house. So my grandma, born in 1909, had no trouble with unreasonable expectations of female beauty. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she was born, you know, still in the corset era. So she didn't care. But were we bombed about her perfection? Did we take that into our little hearts? I don't think so. Because what I think of as the Barbie, Malibu Barbie, if we were bummed about anything, maybe it was her blue eyes, I guess. We all had brown eyes. My brother had blue eyes and it was like the sadness of our whole days. But that's hardly Barbie's fault. <laughs> and body issues. I know a lot of people point to Barbie's thigh gap, but... In the 70s, thigh gap wasn't a thing. We just thought it was so you could get your pants on. The doll. <laughs> it was hard enough to drag the waistlines up all the way. If anyone remembers, you needed like a button hook. My friend Leslie's dad had rigged this thing out of a paperclip and a, a pencil where you could pull her clothes up. Oh. Also, she had Barbie Dreamhouse and she had the camper van and she had a bucket of naked Barbies. <laughs> so I was actually thinking about this because it really bothered a lot of people. And maybe this is A, white privilege or B, just a lack of real feelings for Barbie. But she didn't look like me and I didn't care. So that's not the same for everyone. I am 100% sure some women hate Barbie. They hate the very thought of her. They think Barbie is the reason that they have issues with their self-image. There was an author named Anna Quinlan who wrote this article about how she hated Barbie. She gives little girls the message that the only thing that's important is being tall and thin and having a big chest and lots of clothes, and she is a terrible role model. <laughs> Anybody that would make a doll a role model has got some problems. <laughs> well, her daughter, who was the one campaigning for the Barbie doll, said, Mom, it is just a toy. Mm -hmm. You are putting too much on this doll. <laughs> and if you think about it, Barbie is a career woman. She's having to overcome her good looks to get respect. If that's not a modern woman, I don't know what is. And also using the Mattel side of the story, Barbie had careers from the day she was born. She had a job. She was a single woman living on her own, supporting her own dream house. She had a boyfriend. She had a lot of friends, but she wasn't married and she did have careers. So their point was she should be a feminist role model, not somebody that you're, you know, lighting on fire. Ruth intended for Barbie to be a way for girls to open up their futures, to practice with what they wanted their lives to be like. I just really don't think you could lay poor body image at the misshapen feet of Barbie. <laughs> Everyone in society is contributing to this. Don't you think ads and oh yeah, all oh. the focus on diets and... Yeah, she was just a doll. <laughs> well, Ruth just plain old thought her detractors were wrong, like the end. She didn't even agonize, which I admire about her. Mm -hmm. So if we could head back to Ruth's story for a moment, right before my old friend Malibu Barbie was revealed to the world, real Barbie, as far as I'm concerned, <laughs> Ruth had a health scare. She was in the shower one day and found a lump on her breast. She went to the doctor. The doctor removed it. It was benign, but this pattern of finding lump, having surgery, having it being benign will go with Ruth for years. Her breasts were all scarred up from all the surgery she had removing all these tumors. Well, about the same time that Malibu Barbie came on the scene, she 
actually came back with a breast cancer diagnosis and she had to have her entire breast, uh, some muscle tissue and some lymph nodes removed, a partial radical mastectomy. So it took her a while to recover. Um, She was back at work. She had become the president of Mattel uh, the year before, and the company was diversifying, not always wisely. They had bought some toy companies that didn't pan out. They had a devastating fire in a factory that wiped out a lot of back stock. They had a series of financial, and it must be said, legal troubles. I don't know that there's any real need to get into the nitty gritty of those details. As Barbie herself kept climbing, she was, in fact, an Olympic gold medalist, for example, <laughs> Um and we can link you to the troubles. The um, we don't want to say the wrong thing. <laughs> get in trouble, <laughs> no. Mattel. Um, but there were some legal issues that ended up with Elliot and Ruth Handler having to leave Mattel in 1975. I do think they still owned a significant percentage, but they were no longer involved in the day-to-day workings of the company they had founded. What is going to become of Barbie? What's going to become of the Handlers? When we come back, we'll explore the end game. are out at Mattel. What on earth was Ruth going to do? After her cancer operation, she went to get fitted for a breast prosthetic and it didn't feel right. It didn't look right. And she decided it had been designed by men who never had to wear it. So she set out using the engineers that she knew to create a better breast prosthetic. She saw a need and filled a need, just like she had with Barbie. She created the Ruthton Company. Her name is at last in her company, (laughs) and began work on a product that she called Nearly Me. She personally fitted customers. The most important customer she ever dealt with was First Lady Betty Ford. Mm -hmm. And like Barbie, she was able to create some very unusual marketing strategies and and (laughs) (laughs) promotional opportunities. Ruth would go into meetings with executives and take her (laughs) shirt off and say, guess which one's not real? She, there is is a video of her on the Merv Griffin show with him touching her breasts, trying to figure out which one's real. (laughs) Oh my, I can't even get past that. (laughs) But she was also going into stores and showing people how to fit them properly, you know, training the personnel that were working with these women. It was a need. She filled it and she filled it in a style that I believe that only she could fill it. She was a very strong booster for early detection of breast cancer and was a great mover in that field. She sold her company after 15 years. And I don't know that she made much of a profit. Elliot said that was a passion project. Mm -hmm. But she used to joke that she had lived her life from breast to breast. (laughs) Because of Barbie's boobies being the big thing and then this being her end game. Well, okay. So there's Ruth. Let's catch you up to Barbie. In 1980, for the very first time, Barbie herself 
became a woman of color. Not colored Francie, not friend Christie, but Barbie herself, which was a step in the right direction for sure. They took a special care to make sure that this doll had a natural hairstyle and they didn't use the same Barbie face as regular old Barbie. They actually brought a face called the Steffi doll out of the archives and made her out of a different color plastic. I guess it was a cost-cutting maneuver. Evidently, that face is used in a lot of Barbie spinoffs. On the box, it says, she's black, she's beautiful, she's dynamite. Customers loved her. And I feel like this is the first example of a good representation. 21 years after Barbie came out in the first place. Barbie, during the 80s, reflected the culture in which she lived. Barbie wore fashionable jeans. I know in elementary school, it was all about Gloria Vanderbilt's with the swan on the butt. Barbie's had her name, as you would expect. Barbie did aerobics in her leg warmers like Jane Fonda. She became a yuppie with day-to-night convertible outfits. So you could be in the office at nine in the nightclub at midnight. The crazy 80s. (laughs) Here's another crazy 80s. Andy Warhol. The artist, surely I can just name drop him, (laughs) Andy Warhol, had a friend called Billy Boy, asterisk, he always spelled his name with an asterisk, and he was obsessed with Barbie. He had a collection of, if you were sitting down, 11,000 Barbie dolls, 3,000 Kens. Billy Boy had worked as a curator for this amazing exhibition for Mattel, where there were hundreds of Barbie dolls dressed by top fashion designers, which was an homage to a post-World War II exhibition that had been held in France called Théâtre de la Mode, also with major fashion designers dressing little dolls. And they did it again in the 80s. When Andy Warhol offered to paint his friend which was a big honor, I think. Billy Boy, asterisk, told him, you know what? If you want to do my portrait, you just do Barbie because Barbie, c'est moi. (laughs) Just like, (laughs) well, Andy Warhol's painting was called Barbie, portrait of Billy Boy. And it's Barbie. I don't see any Billy Boy in it. Um, There, He made a version for Mattel in red that he just called Barbie. So this is a star plus a star, Warhol plus Barbie. Amazing. Uh, Incidentally, Billy Boy was the first Barbie designer whose name appeared on her package. Feeling groovy Barbie with her fabulous Zoe Deschanel bangs. (laughs) Very nice. Our two subjects, Ruth and Barbie, were reunited again in 1987. Barbie got a band together. Barbie and the Rockers, the hottest group in the history of the world. Oh, dear. All neon, by the way, and bows. And I was like, what? And then I looked at pictures of Madonna during this era, and I'm like, Oh, okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, I had forgotten about that era. Um, Featured in the two-part video special, Barbie and the Rockers, out of this world, for which Ruth Handler got a writing credit. I watched it, so you don't have to. I am not sure I would want my name on this. But what this meant was that Ruth and Mattel were on the road to reconciliation which I think is very good. And through the 90s, Ruth became involved more in publicity for Barbie. This is really when the origin story became known. Ruth Handler became known as the mother of Barbie. Collectors wanted to meet her at conventions. People wanted her autograph. And it must have been a glorious decade at last. She also mended fences More importantly, as far as I'm concerned, with her daughter Barbara, with whom she'd had a distant relationship their whole lives. 
It's so weird to have your namesake get more of your mother's attention. Yeah. And it reminded me of Van Gogh. I know I'm supposed to say Van Gogh, but I can't do it. Van Gogh. <laughs> I still think Pluto's a planet. That's all. Um, I know. But Van Gogh had the same problem because he had a brother named Vincent Van Gogh who had died one year to the day before his birthday. So he spent every year on his birthday crying for a brother named Vincent Van Gogh at the grave. That is like a weird scenario. So we know how the whole doppelganger, same name thing happened for Vincent Van Gogh. But the two Barbies, I think the first Barbara was always very jealous. I guess I have to just say the word jealous of Barbie, of the second Barbara coming to steal her mother's affection and time away from her. Here I am psychoanalyzing, but it seems like that's the root of their bad relationship. You know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's you have to be take your anger out on something, I guess. And there's it's something. It's not going to hurt Barbie, right? Of course, Ruth had two kids. Her other child was Ken. Um, about this time, because of relationships that he had had earlier in his life, he had contracted AIDS. Now, if cancer wasn't really talked about when Ruth had it, which it wasn't, AIDS wasn't really being talked about about this time either. And Ken became very ill and he died. Now, in the news, it'll give his cause of death as something else, a brain tumor or encephalitis. But he really did die of AIDS and the family kept it quiet because that was the time. That was the era. Meanwhile, let's turn it back up to a happier note. The plastic Ken was also changing. They wanted to have a more hip Ken. So they gave him a purple mesh shirt. They gave him a diamond earring. And suddenly Ken's sexuality came into question. Although he still doesn't have a... Yeah. (laughs) In the 90s, Barbie's collectibles take off. Now, these are dolls that are aimed at the adult market. I don't think there is any indication that they intended for Bob Mackie to dress toys that little kids are going to play with, for Calvin Klein to make outfits that would end up in the bucket with Naked Barbie. I don't think so. (laughs) Um, There was a collector's edition, Legends of Hollywood. I think my favorite is this great Scarlett O'Hara in her portiere dress, by the way. Oh, yes. Side note, no way is that Rut Butler doll Ken. No way. That is that is not Ken. That is Clark Cable. And Barbie ran for president in 1992 in a red pantsuit, no less, the year Bill Clinton beat Herbert Walker Bush. That woman can just do anything. Can't she? And I, when you look at uh, presidential candidate Barbie, she kind of looks a little bit like Hillary Clinton of the era. She's got the same haircut. I think you're thinking of the 2000 presidential candidate Barbie. The 2000 version looked a lot more professional. So there's a whole decade of Ruth being able to be involved with Barbie's life, really, and Barbara's life. Ruth Handler died on April 27th, 2002. And the Washington Post in her obituary referred to her as, quote, an entrepreneur and marketing genius. And I think Ruth would have liked that. (laughs) And later that same year, Barbie got her hands and feet immortalized in concrete in Hollywood. And Barbara was the one who helped Barbie make her mark. There's a certain circular justice to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, Barbie, of course, moved on. She broke up with Ken in 2004. Ruth is rolling in her grave. (laughs) 
She broke up with him after 40 plus years for a surfer named Blaine. His name is Blaine. That's not a name. That's a major appliance. (laughs) Spot the 80s movie reference. Well, Barbie and Ken broke up right before Valentine's Day. That is sick. (laughs) There's some twisted minds at Mattel. Well, just in time for Barbie's biggest celebration ever, I don't know if they wanted her to be single for the event, in 2009, it was Barbie's 50th birthday. She's aging so well. (laughs) There was a runway show during actual fashion week where uh, 50 top designers paid homage to Barbie. Of course, limited edition Barbies and clothes. My favorite homage during that year was Kristen Wiig as original Barbie in the black and white striped suit uh, (laughs) on Saturday Night Live. (laughs) What's the matter, Seth? Not into plastic? And she looks at the camera and winks. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Is that – do you have – did you find that on YouTube? Or um, I- yes. Oh, good. good I'll good, send good. you the link. Um, <laughs> it's pretty funny. She tries to open a bottle of whiskey. <laughs> Can't do it because her fingers don't move. <laughs> her arms will move now. Her legs will move. Her waist will twist, but she can't move her hands. <laughs> so funny. I've had many careers, but I get fired from all of them because most of them require elbows. <laughs> it just, it's really well done. I really like it. Even I- Seth can't stop smiling the whole time. You know how you watch Saturday Night Live and they're about to break? He is like that almost the whole entire. She holds it together, but he cannot. It is funny. I totally missed this one. Well, meanwhile, the haters keep hating. Um, Representative Jeff Eldridge of West Virginia put a bill into Congress called the Barbie ban bill. He wanted that doll banned in his state of West Virginia. He said she was a bad influence and no one signed on, but he didn't care. He wanted to make a point. Okay. (laughs) All right. Good job, bud. So, okay, Mattel is a set of geniuses. In 2010, I've referred to this earlier, Ken and Barbie co-starred in Toy Story 3. It's rough when you have to work with your ex, especially when you're carrying a torch like Ken is. And Ken took to billboards in LA and signs in Times Square. Barbie, we may be plastic, but my love is real. (laughs) The social media team, I mean Ken, checked in at Magnolia Bakery on Foursquare buying cupcakes or somebody. <laughs> I read of flirtatious tweeting and Facebook conversations. I honestly, there's so many people with like Barbie and Ken or Ken Carson, or I just can't find the real one. So if you have the time on your hands and wish to dig, I, they're probably still out there. And on Valentine's Day, 2011, after seven years apart, the dream team was back together. Yay! And cynical people will call this a PR stunt to boost sales. But I say... It's true love. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to stand on the side of the cynical people, but all right. True love is nice. (laughs) Well, it's as close as you can get with anatomical difficulties. (laughs) Sure. Okay. Well, so finally, finally, Mattel had a success with women of color and representation thereof. Uh, In 2015, the Fashionistas line came out. 2015. It's pretty late, (laughs) but better late than never. There are 23 dolls with 23 different hair colors, eight skin tones, 14 different faces at last. Um, Also, she can wear flats or heels because she now has movable ankles. Radical in many ways. Mm -hmm. During this revamping, there's now a um, different body types. There's a petite, a tall, and a curvy. The curvy one, um, a lot of people think isn't 
curvy enough, they would really like to see a heavier body type. But, you know, it's a baby step. It's good. It's not the skinny little Barbie anymore. And a petite. Aren't you happy for petite? (laughs) I am not sure. Actually, how I feel about this. I'm going to be honest. I mean, I don't know. Is it still Barbie? I'm not sure I think that's still Barbie. I think Barbie is like Mickey Mouse. It is what it is. I just don't know. It doesn't matter what I think. More important to what I think is how the people playing with them think. So if that is what empowers the girls, I think that is the right thing. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, how they feel about themselves and also about other people. So it is a good development. It is unequivocally, but I wish they had done it in the 70s when mm-hmm. they really needed to. Yeah, um, They waited so long that I think Barbie is attached to a certain face. Another thing they could represent a little bit better, a lot better, is a disabled Barbie. There was a disabled Barbie in the 90s. She wasn't Barbie, though. She was Becky. And the first version of her, her hair got caught in the wheels of her wheelchair. Oh, no. <laughs> and she didn't fit in the dream house. Oops. So the second version of her took care of those things, cut her hair, made it a little slimmer. But that's it. Then they stopped making them. Done. And that was in the 90s. So in 2018, the year we are recording this, there is a new line called Inspiring Women of History, combined with a line called Shiro's. For example, Chloe Kim, who we all loved in the Olympics, the um, gold medal winning snowboarder is one of those. Misty Copeland is gorgeous. She's wearing this very modern ballet dress and she's it's red and she's got like a fluffy headpiece on. Gorgeous. They seem to be releasing at least some of these to the general public, the modern day sheroes anyway. And as to the inspiring women of history, so far there are three. Um, Amelia Earhart, Katherine Johnson of Hidden Figures fame and Frida Kahlo. Although the Frida Kahlo doll cannot be sold in Mexico. It is forbidden. Hmm. There's great controversy about the Frida Kahlo figure, even in America. It's felt like they made her too thin. They wiped away the very things that made her her. (laughs) You know, (laughs) she doesn't have a unibrow anymore. Um, And we covered Frida Kahlo, and we are pretty sure that she would not be really that down with this either. No. I don't think so. Um, so anyway, um, the other two have seemed to slip through, but the Frida Kahlo figure is full of controversy. Now, there already have been collector's editions of historical figures. This is not a very new phenomenon. There's been an Empress Josephine, Empress Sissy, Marilyn Monroe, Cleopatra, a secret unproduced 1997 Lady Die. When you dive into all the celebrities or famous people from history, the number of people that have Barbie dolls after them just totally blew my mind. I mean, there's an Elvis and Priscilla Barbie dolls. There's a Joan Jett and there's a Cindy Lauper. Yay! I would have totally played with a Cindy Lauper doll. I totally would have. I think my mom even would have gotten me that. Maybe a Joan Jett. <laughs> I am very partial to the name Jet. I wonder why. <laughs> Is that where it came from? No. No, no, no. He's named after somebody in real life. Um, okay. So here are some facts that I didn't know where else to put. <laughs> <laughs> there have been over a billion, that is with a B as in Beckett, one billion Barbies sold since 1959. And 
doing the math, assuming that each Barbie has two pairs of shoes, which is very conservative, by the way, because Barbies have more shoes than two, but all of the Barbie shoes ever made would fit around the equator if you could get them all out of 60 years of vacuum cleaner bags. <laughs> um, the average number of Barbies that the under 10s possess in America is, do you have a guess? Each uh, girl under 10 has how many? Three? Twelve. Shut up! Can that be true? I Now I'm thinking, did I... Did my daughter have Barbies? She must have. I must have bought her Barbies. Here's another guess for you. What percent of girls between three and ten have at least one Barbie? Between three and ten? Oh, man. I'm going to go with 80. 99%. Holy cow! <laughs> Evidently, two Barbies are sold every second. Wow. Worldwide. Um, yeah. She is the only doll to have her own Pantone color. And I do not like its code number. Are you ready? It's called Barbie Pink and it's PMS 219C. <laughs> <laughs> the hits just keep coming. I'm That's right. <laughs> well, and then there's a song that came out. I'm sure we've all heard it by a band named Aqua. I'm a Barbie, I'm Barbie girl. girl. In, in a Barbie, Barbie world. world. Yeah. I, I was singing it with you. Wrapped in plastic. <laughs> it's fantastic. Well, Mattel objected. They thought it reflected poorly on their brand. Mattel wanted to crack down, and that song did get pulled for a while. But ultimately, the band won. The judge ruled that it was parody and also closed his ruling in this case with the very Malibu Barbie phrase. And this is real. The parties are advised to chill. <laughs> so the future's bright for Barbie, although I have to say there so far is not, unbelievably, a podcasting Barbie. What? Not yet. The closest I can get. Now there's game developer Barbie who has headphones, but she has white tennis shoes and you know I would never wear white tennis shoes. So the closest I can get to represent me is a figure from 2010 called I Can Be a Computer Engineer. <laughs> um, but it's problematic. I love her costume, etc. But the book that accompanied this doll had boys get her out of programming trouble. Ugh. And there's a whole website called feministhackerbarbie.com that seeks to redress the text in this book by having people submit their own text <laughs> and correcting the story, which I kind of like. So I'll send you there. Well, I do wear white tennis sneakers. So computer engineer Barbie. Yeah. I mean, except I can't, you know, program a computer, <laughs> but we're available, you know, to become Barbie dolls, I suppose. <laughs> with our mics they could put us at a big table with a bar behind it very realistic <laughs> and you could sell all the little liquor bottles man if you thought boobies were a problem what about bourbon <laughs> barbie from boobies to bourbon <laughs> well that brings us to the end of our coverage of barbie the doll the woman the icon and her creator ruth handler okay let's do let's do media let's talk about some books all right, now the coffee table book industry is full of Barbie books. You know, you reserve them at the library, not knowing what they look like. And then you show up and you're like, I need a stronger bag <laughs> to carry away the one. But okay, so the coffee table book that I liked the best is called Barbie, the Icon by Massimiliano Capella. It's really good. It goes through the decades and relates Barbie's fashions to the fashions of the day and also goes through the backstory in a beautiful coffee table 
I don't know, this book probably weighs six pound for me. Yes. That's the one I have right in front of me right now. The cover is an extreme close-up of the first Barbie. And I had placed it around my house and I was freaking out everybody in the house because they'd walk in the room and see this life-size face. <laughs> so for that reason alone, it was on my list as my favorite. Now, kids books, I uh, there is a series of books called Toy Trailblazers and a book called Barbie Developer, Ruth Handler by Lee Slater is a good introduction to the backstory. There's a 10 and up. It's not really a YA, but it's not exactly a middle grade, but it's by our friend Tanya Lee Stone, who seems to write a lot of biographies that we like for our kids. It's called The Good, The Bad, and The Barbie, A Doll's History by Tanya Lee Stone. I like how on the front cover it says, unauthorized. <laughs> like, woo. <laughs> also, our old friend Billy Boy from the Andy Warhol chapter in Barbie's Life has a book of his own. Who's more qualified to write a book than a man that has 11,000 Barbies? It's called Barbie, Her Life and Times. Ruth herself wrote an autobiography called Dream Doll, but it's, you know, Ruth's interpretation of events. <laughs> On the other extreme, there's a very dark book called Toy Monster, The Big Bad World of Mattel by Jerry Oppenheimer. And it's very heavy on the Jack Ryan story, and it does not paint a very good picture of Ruth Handler. So, you know, read her biography and then read this one. No, do it the other way around. <laughs> also on the dark side, You Don't Own Me, How Mattel versus MGA Entertainment Exposed Barbie's Dark Side by Orly Lobel. A very pro Barbie is Forever Barbie, the unauthorized biography of a real doll by M.G. Lord. It's also partial memoir. I liked it. She kept putting herself into the story. So I, I did like that. And a very balanced one was Barbie and Ruth, the story of the world's most famous doll and the woman who created her by Robin Gerber. I would say that's probably the one to start with. Do you agree? Mm -hmm. I do. I have because I have pro Barbie, dark Barbie, really pro Barbie and then balanced. And that's the balanced one. Nice. Okay, good. And that's uh, all I got for books. Now, as to movies, you know, (laughs) there's infinite movies available. Cartoon movies of Barbie and the Rockers and Friends. So if you have small children and want to watch cartoon Barbie, you're certainly not spoiled for choice in that department. I recommend a series on Netflix called The Toys That Made Us. Season one, episode two is The Barbie Story. There are also episodes on Legos. So if that's your thing, I think I I really, really, really liked it. It's the history of some iconic toys that shaped modern America. Uh, There is a documentary on Hulu. It's a Hulu original. It's called Tiny Shoulders, Rethinking Barbie. And it's the story of that last series of dolls with all the different body shape. It's the story of how they came into creation. So you see them from the very beginning conceptualized and then how they go through the process at Mattel to actually, you know, launching the doll. I thought that was very interesting. It was really well done. Behind the scenes. Yes, very much so. Very pro Mattel, of course, but you know, that's okay. It looks like a really cool place to work. Did we ever figure out, and maybe I'll ask you, the listeners, if Susan doesn't remember, we were thinking there is a movie, and is it Mean Girls? I can't think, where the main character gets tricked into dressing like Barbie in a life-size Barbie box for a speech and gets made fun of, and she runs out of the room. That's all the information I have. I just remember it very vividly because I thought, ha ha, where do you get a life-size Barbie box? Oh, evidently, if you look online, there have been so many people dressed as Barbie in a box for Halloween at Boggle 
boggles my mind. And there are <laughs> detailed instructions on YouTube and Pinterest, and you can knock yourself out. I did not know how common that was. <laughs> As far as websites go, you have to go to, of course, the biggie, the barbiemedia.com. They have an image section that they allow you to download and print off one copy, including Andy Warhol's Barbie painting. They won't be in our show notes because we don't have the rights to them. And they have a second website that covers the Dream Gap Project. It addresses the year when girls are five and they developed limited self-beliefs. And it's how we can overcome that, not just with the Barbie dolls, but also in our lives. So there's a lot of resources on there. They had some really interesting statistics. Girls are three times less likely to be given science-related toys, and it's two times more likely for people to Google, is my son gifted than is my daughter gifted? Mm. Wow. I know. You know, not to talk about another company on a Mattel episode, really, but Mattel is not sponsoring this episode. So, so we can be free. I really like Goldie Blocks. Mm-hmm. Speaking of science gifts, this is going to come out too close to Christmas, I think, to really <laughs> make a turn and get on Amazon. But Goldie Blocks actually has a, a doll also. I was really impressed with the way that that company has handled science education for girls. Mm -hmm. So I would go to goldieblocks.com too. Well, you can just run out to Toys R Us. Oh, wait. No, you can't. Bummer. (laughs) I know. Well, the National Museum of Play is the home of the Toy Hall of Fame. Barbie is in the first 11 inductees in the Hall of Fame, which now includes, of course, Atari, the cardboard box, (laughs) (laughs) and a stick. Uh, You know, you can't can't argue with that. No, 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 Uh, no. The the stick wins. So she has been there since the beginning, and that website has a lot of resources, too. Don't miss Barbie's Instagram feed. No, don't. And also, Barbie has a YouTube channel that (laughs) you could just watch Barbie videos from... For years, I think. You'd probably outgrow wanting to watch Barbie videos before you could finish all the Barbie videos there are in this world. But also on YouTube is an interview between Barbara Handler and her daughter talking about the Handlers. And they have some images of doodles that her dad did. And they talk about her parents. I I thought it was great. You can see the real Barbie. Well, Barbara. She never went by Barbie. Would you have? No, but I mean, like, it wasn't like her nickname when she was little, you know, before mom created the doll. They didn't call her Barbie. I guarantee you everybody called her Barbie. I, well, I'm going to tell you this, too. Jack's first wife's name was Barbara. And there's some discussion, mostly in that dark book, that he was the person to name Barbie. She came to him with the idea and he did everything else. That's interesting, though, that there was two Barbaras on both sides, of, on the mom and the dad side. <laughs> I have two Aunt Barbaras. That's all I'm saying. Do you? I, I have do. none. Yeah. None. Barbara was a very popular name. So what else do I have? I have a link to the video of the Burp Gun commercial. Oh, yeah. I'm not sure would play these days. And also Kristen Wiig as the first Barbie on SNL, which I really loved. And then we referred a little bit earlier to computer engineer Barbie's faux pas. <laughs> Or not her faux pas. She had nothing to do with it. The people that made the book made her depend on men to fix her programming and all of the furor that caused in the actual computer engineer community. So don't miss feminist hack or Barbie. And then let's see. Oh, and this is a little bit of a, oh, also a link to Betty Brosmer so you can see her figure. And oh, yeah. a little 
section from NPR's Code Switch, talking about the switch, the journey from colored to people of color. And I thought that was interesting how the terminology changed. And maybe had they listened to this, they may not have named Francie Colored Francie and suffered the financial downturn. (laughs) Oh, somebody needs a time traveling box. Of course, it's always a box, right? (laughs) Yes. It is for me. And it's blue, of course. I have nothing else. And in closing, Barbie has inspired and encouraged three generations of children in her 59 years. She's always represented the historically novel idea that a woman has choices. She's been transformed to reflect societal changes in each and every decade she's lived through. And that is what makes her timeless, both as an icon and as a record of just how far we've come. Thanks for listening. Bye. If you've learned something today, please tell a few friends or leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts. We would absolutely love to see pictures of your own Barbies or your children's Barbies, especially if (laughs) they're a little beat up, colored on, their hair is cut or otherwise modified. Um, Those are always hilarious. Let's see, where should you post them? Just go to our Facebook page at The History Chicks and then click the button that says Join Group and everyone can participate. Thanks, as always, to James Harper as Harper Active for letting us use his song, Cafe Babe. The end song today, although I wish it could be Barbie Girl by Aqua, I do not have the fortitude to go through those clearances. So, one that I do have permission to use, You're Human After All by Stars and Skylines, courtesy of Music Alley. You can buy it, if you like it, on Apple Music. You're in fear.